So I'm going to invite you to turn with me your attention or your heart to the words that are on the screen or also to um, the scripture. It's in uh, Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 15 all the way through verse 20. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who had been lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told him about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So Christmas is here. Finally, after all our hurrying and scurrying, maybe, just maybe, we'll find a little bit of peace. We are so tired of the politics of division and derision, of the accusations and the lies, of the investigations and the denials that we're bombarded with on a daily basis. We're exhausted from the recent election and from the continuing challenges. We're tired that police shootings and the shooting of police continue to dominate our headlines. The terrorist threats and attacks continue occurring around the world. That the war in Ukraine and the Russian war crimes drag on. That we seem to jump from health crisis to another health crisis. And that we're constantly bombarded with earthquakes and flooding and tornadoes and fires and volcanic eruptions and now blizzards. We grieve the denominations and the congregations that have imploded because people can't agree or even agree to disagree. It's painful to watch. It's even more painful to experience. We're worn out from all the planning and practicing and purchasing and preparing trying to make this Christmas the best Christmas possible. C.S. Lewis once described Narnia under the spell of the white witch as cold and gray all the time. It was always winter and never Christmas. That may aptly define for us what this last year has felt like. Perpetual winter, and never Christmas. We're so exhausted that even a red-nosed reindeer and an old man in a, in a red suit with a three-word vocabulary coming to town is welcome and a pleasant sight for most people in this world. Obviously, our world is desperate for some good news. So it should not be too hard for us to imagine how the people felt in Jesus' day. The Jews in Israel were under the continuous Roman oppression, under the 
thumb of their pompous leaders and heavy taxes, of rampant immorality, of continuous war crimes and injustices, on restrictions on their worship, and often on the violent pushback of the zealots and the insurrectionists. And then there was the constant parade of false and failed messiahs that they had experienced and You know, the ones who claimed to be the one and instead brought nothing but unfulfilled promises, economic hardships, increased oppression, and waning hope. For years, Steve Brown, who was a professor at Reformed Seminary, a local church pastor, and a a radio preacher at Key Life Ministry, and Tony Campolo, who was a sociology professor at Eastern College and a Baptist pastor, regularly debated on a syndicated television program that was called Hashing It Out. They were poles apart politically and even theologically, but they were in complete agreement about one thing, about Jesus And the fact that Jesus makes all the difference. And he, Jesus, made all the difference in their relationship as well. You see, they both loved Jesus so deeply that they were able to love each other deeply. They each took the world seriously. But the only thing they took more seriously than the world was Jesus. Tony Campalo said, and I quote, Jesus never says to the poor, go find a church. No, he continually says to the church, go into the world and find the poor, the hungry, the homeless, and the imprisoned. We need to affirm, he says, that Jesus is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. Whenever we marry Jesus to a particular political party, we are committing the sin of idolatry, end quote. Steve Brown responded saying, quote, I think Tony's wrong. My economics are still capitalist. Our national borders always need to be clear. Terrorists should be eliminated as efficiently as possible, and Jesus is obviously a Republican. But our love for each other has never changed, and we laugh with each other more than we yell at each other, end quote. You see, they both believed what the author of Hebrews said when he wrote, In the past, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom the entire universe was made. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And that, that good news should make all the difference. So Tony and Steve could put their differences aside because of Bethlehem. You see, empires come and go. Presidents are elected and serve out their terms. Armies march Politicians pontificate and judges judge. As Shakespeare once wrote, it's all much ado about nothing. Well, maybe not quite nothing, 
but certainly not as important as those kings and presidents and politicians and judges and even many citizens really think it is. While most people consider Christmas to be one of the most joyous times of the year, the reality is there are equally as many and perhaps even more people who are discouraged and depressed. And for Christmas, those emotions are magnified. There's a lot of fake joy, a lot of real sadness, a lot of real brokenheartedness, and a lot of deep confusion at Christmas. And in fact, the death and the dying totals increase. And we wonder, is there anybody really in charge of this mess? And the answer is, we need Christmas. We need Bethlehem. And we need the scriptures to put life in perspective. So the psalmist wrote, Why do the nations conspire and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. It's not the psalmist who laughs. It's the one who's sitting on the throne that laughs. He knows about Bethlehem, you see. He knows about Christmas. He knows about the word who came in the flesh. Our relief from the noise of this world and our confidence for what is ahead comes from knowing what God knows. That in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with him. With God from the very beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You see, God has a plan. And God is working out that plan. And on Christmas, in this little town called Bethlehem, God decides to share his plan with us. God tells us in Bethlehem that regardless of how it appears on the surface, he is still in control. According to his gracious and grand plan, a child is born. A child born to die. Born to set us free. Born that you and I might live and live for eternity. Final chapter of the book that started in Bethlehem has already been written. So this morning, I'd like to invite you to come to Bethlehem along with the shepherds. In that 15th verse of Luke, the second chapter, there is a text that many of my commentators just simply overlooked. After having focused heavily on the first 14 verses and telling the story over and over about the birth of a Savior and the angelic announcement, they decided just to brush over that 15th verse and land on the 16th verse and focus once again on the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and now their baby lying in a manger. But if we do that, 
in my estimation, we miss an important part of Christmas. You see, on Christmas, our celebration of the infant born in Bethlehem is about light shining in the darkness and giving hope to people who have been living in that darkness. John writes, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Christmas is about sinners finding peace and forgiveness, knowing we have a Savior and a friend. Matthew records, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. See, Bethlehem is about a God who is different than anybody imagined, who graces us with a remarkable gift in an unremarkable package. God in flesh. John says, the word became flesh and it made its dwelling among us, full of grace, full of truth. Bethlehem is about unlovely people who are loved beyond their wildest expectations. John writes, we love because he first loved us. Bethlehem is about people who were fearing punishment, being literally scared to death, and finally finding that peace and that hope that they coveted. John writes, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. It's about people who have given up trying to follow all of God's rules and finally be reminded that God just didn't make us. He didn't just think about us. God came to be with us, to live alongside of us, to love on us face to face. John writes, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, they came through Jesus Christ. And then, Bethlehem is that promise for you and for me that the best is yet to come. See, when Christ was born, our hope was born. His relentless love for us was exposed. And the best, his best is yet, yet to be ours. Paul writes, God uses all things to work for good for those who love him. You see, the story of Bethlehem is about God's relentless love for you and for me. This event invites us also to join the shepherds and to come to Bethlehem to see God in the flesh, wrapped in furoshiki and swaddling cloths, to believe the wildest of promises, for a Savior has been born to you this day, and to worship an infant who has promised to eliminate every barrier every fence, every sin, every tear, every dent, every debt, and even the grave. So you and I need to escort him to the seat of honor, to pull out his chair, to clear the table, to clear our calendar, to call the kids and the neighbors, to tell them, today in the city of David, a savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. He's here. Christmas has finally come. Every heart can be his manger. Every day can be a Christmas. You see, this child born in Bethlehem, he changes everything. From the course of human history to our eternal destiny, if, if we follow the example of the shepherds 
and if we go to Bethlehem to see him. After hearing the good news of great joy that was intended for all the people that the day in the town of David, in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. The shepherds decided that they had to go and see what God had done. According to the scriptures, not only did the shepherds decide, not only did they give intellectual assent to what they should do, as people often do, Verse 16 says that they hurried off. That is, they actually implemented their decision and they actually decided to do what they did. People seldom follow through on their promises. But you see, that's what's amazing about Bethlehem. God did. And they saw it just as it was promised them. They interrupted their schedule. They inconvenienced themselves. They took the risk. They left their comfort zone and they went. And there it was. They followed through. They saw it. They saw. They believed in Jesus. And it changed them forever. I wish I knew how to share this good news so that everyone, everyone would not only receive it as information to be processed, but as the transformation of their heart and life and soul and the change of their eternity. I've been preaching for a fairly long time, and you'd think I would have figured it out. How do you get people to respond to this opportunity and to this invitation? Do you turn up the volume? Do you repeat it over and over and over? Do you get in their face? Do you shake them so that maybe some sense gets into them? Or do you lock the doors of the worship center until they promise to believe and then let them out? What do you do? If people just understood what God has done for them in Bethlehem some years ago, it would not only change them here and now, it would change their eternal destination and it would transform our world. It would transform the dialogue between Republicans and Democrats. It would would change the dialogue between theological traditionalists and progressives, between accusers and their abusers, between moderns and postmoderns, between the haves and the have-nots. It would allow polar opposites to be good friends. And our world would get fed. The homeless would be sheltered. The naked would be clothed. The sick would be visited. The prisoners would be embraced. Plows would be turned. Swords would be turned into plowshares. Our pain would subside. Some of our tears would dry up. And we would be a bit more gracious toward one another. We could, we would, as they say, bark less and wag more. I believe in those kind of miracles because I believe in the miracle of Bethlehem, in the miracle of Christmas, in the miracle of God becoming flesh. 
The Apostle John summarizes it for us. That which was, he said, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and here we also proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us and the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. It's Christmas because of Bethlehem. That which we have seen and heard has and can continue to make a difference in our life and in our world. And if it doesn't, we're just wasting our time. When Jean Francis Gravelet saw Niagara Falls for the very first time, he knew he had to cross it on a rope. That was 1858, and the French airlist was touring America with P.T. Barnum. A year later, he returned, and he stretched a 1,300-foot length of rope between the two steep cliffs of the fall. While 10,000 spectators held their breath, this 35-year-old great blondine, as he was called, stepped onto the rope. Stopping midway, he lowered a line down to a waiting steamboat 190 feet below, pulled up a bottle of wine, drank it, and continued to the other side. For two summers, Gravelet performed above Niagara Falls. He crossed over on a bicycle, on stilts, and at night. He swung by one arm, turned somersault, stood on his head on a chair, he pushed a stove in a wheelbarrow and cooked an omelet as he was walking across the rushing water. But Gravelet's greatest feat was that he carried a man across on his back. With his passenger secured by a harness with foot hooks, Gravelet, holding on to his 35-foot balancing pole, walked across the falls. It's easy to be impressed with the courage and the skill of the Great Blondine, but would you have enough faith to put your life in his hands? In 1860, the Prince of Wales was given the opportunity, and he politely declined to stake his life on it. After two years, the novelty wore off, the interest waned, the crowds had disappeared, and today, no one except maybe Google even remembers his name. There are a lot of people who have heard about Bethlehem. Crowds still come and visit Bethlehem. Thousands annually stoop to kiss the plexiglass over the apparent spot where Jesus was born. There are millions who acknowledge that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. There are millions who also believe that he might be the son of God. But there are far, far fewer who trust him with their life. You see, it's one thing to believe that Blondine could walk that rope, but it's an entirely different thing to stake your life on it. 
But that's the kind of faith that God requires from those who would follow Jesus. Anything less. And you and I are just wasting our time. Has your life been transformed because of Bethlehem? Because of Bethlehem, does your presence in this world make any difference at all? Do you really understand what happened in that little town? Are you willing to trust Jesus, the child born there, with your entire life and with your eternity? Following Jesus always involves risk. Always has, always will. That's why it requires faith. But because of Bethlehem, today you and I can experience good news of great joy. But only, only if we're willing to entrust our life to the child that was wrapped in cloth and was placed in a manger. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Bethlehem. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for sending your only son, the word in the flesh, into this world to be our Savior and Lord. Father, because we in our world are such a mess, we need your help, even embracing this miracle of Christmas. We need your spirit's prompting to go to Bethlehem and see. We need your strength and wisdom to be able to transform our world in his name. Father, Come make your home in the manger of our heart today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.